Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 140, Wilfred, How to Win Friends and Influence People. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. And actually, right now, I'm working on a series on the life of Bede and everything that made up Bede. Considering that there's so much information that we gain from him, it's probably a good idea to know about the world that he inhabited. So if you're interested in supporting the show, helping us out, and of course, getting access to those extra membership episodes, you can go over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and sign up for membership. It's pretty cheap, only about the cost of a latte or a decent pint per month. And thank you very much to Remy, Zach, and Joseph for contributing already. Now, today's episode will take place in the turbulent years from 686 to 692, and the main characters today will be Aldfrith, King of Mercia, son of Oswiu, brother of Egfrith, and scholarly dude. Wilfred, former Bishop of York, friend of the terrifying pagan king Caedwalla, and man you really don't want to cross. And finally, Aethelred, King of Mercia, son of Penda, brother of Wolf Hera, and despite his rather pious beginnings, he really was his father's son. But before we start with all of them, we should probably address something. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that I've lost you at least once during the last month or two. That at some point you said, wait, what? Who is this? What exactly is going on here? And the reason I'm so sure of this is because I'm the guy who studies and writes this stuff and even I get lost sometimes. But I don't think it's an excuse to skip over this period of history. I think it just means that it needs special care and attention. That's why I've been reminding you of who people are and why I've been headlining major characters at the beginnings of the episodes. But I think a brief statement of where we're at might be helpful too, since simply saying that we're at about 690 doesn't really help all that much. So let's start with relative dates. We're over 700 years after Caesar's invasions of Britannia, a bit over 600 years from the time of Boudicca, and a bit under 400 years from the date where Constantine was proclaimed emperor in York. We're also about 300 years from Rome's withdrawal from Britannia, almost 200 years from the time of Gildas, the Battle of Baden Hill, and the mythic time of Arthur, and about 100 years after the arrival of St. Augustine and the reintroduction of Christianity into Anglo-Saxon Britain. And that's really where things started to get interesting for us, because we have a shocking number of major and minor kingdoms in Britain at that point, and they were all ready for a scuffle. And as a result, we're just under 80 years from when Edwin and Raedwald killed King Aethelfrith at the Battle of the River Idol. And after that, Northumbria became really powerful. We're also about 50 years from when King Oswald was killed by Penda and was displayed on whale stangs. You know, dead body poles. After that, Mercia also became really powerful. And things between Northumbria and Mercia started to get really nasty. We're also about 45 years from when Oswiu of Northumbria killed Penda of Mercia at the Battle of the Windwade. And because Oswiu was Oswiu, he also found himself involved in a shocking number of deaths of his own relatives. And it's been about 25 years since King Wolf Hera of Mercia died, which was around the time of the Staffordshire Horde. And more recently, the kings of Northumbria, Wessex, Kent, and Sussex have all died. Oh, and the Pope? 
Yeah, he's still poping as hard as he can, so we have monasteries, abbeys, nunneries, and all manner of houses of worship just popping up all over Britain. So does that help? Basically, if you need a visual aid for this period in history, imagine that all these kings are ants in a glass jar, and some kid keeps shaking the hell out of it trying to get them to fight. But the truth is that while I love the characters in these stories, and they are all fun to talk about, I mean, who wouldn't love talking about Wolf Hera, Oswiu, Edwin, and of course our Don Corleone, Bishop Wilfred? The real characters are the kingdoms. So if you get lost with all the Aethels and all these kings that just pop up and then immediately drop dead, try to remember the kingdoms, and that should keep you on track. So here's where the kingdoms are coming from. Mercia, Northumbria, and Wessex were all incredibly warlike. They're basically the bullies of the group. And they all had a shot at being the supreme power in Britain. However, they've all flubbed it so far. Recently, the biggest bully, Northumbria, had lost a serious fight. And so now it's trying to turn over a new leaf, becoming a bit more nerdy and setting aside constant warfare in favor of more intellectual pursuits. But all the kingdoms that were bullied don't seem to be all that eager to bury the hatchet. Especially Pictland, who went through a bit of a growth spurt recently. And Mercia might not be ready for a fight yet, but they're hitting the gym. So we'll see how that works out. So that's roughly the drama that's brewing in the north. As far as the south, Wessex is still looking to cause trouble, and is rather grumpy about Mercia, and is giving serious side-eye to Sussex and Kent. Now, think of Kent like the rich kid in the group, and generally, they seem to be content simply to be the fanciest kingdom in Britain. But lately, they've been beaten up by Wessex, Essex, and Sussex, and that has to sting. As for Sussex, they're kind of the kid who everyone forgot was in the class, and then halfway through the semester, they surprised everybody and sucker punched the rich kid. But a sucker punch isn't the same as knowing how to fight, and Wessex quickly reminded them of that. And now they probably wish they just kept their heads down like Essex did. And Essex? Well, they're kind of the Mr. Smee of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, and they always seem to be ready to offer just enough support to befriend whoever seems like the toughest kingdom in the south. And right now, they're besties with Wessex, having bonded while beating up Kent. And as for East Anglia? Well, they peaked too early under Raidwald, and since then, they really haven't done all that much. And you'd be forgiven if you forgot they existed at all. And of course, everybody in the South wants London. But nobody seems to be able to consistently hold it. So that's a quick sketch of who everyone is and what's going on, and roughly why they're fighting. And with that in mind... Let's get back to our story. Today, we'll focus mostly upon our bully-turned-bookworm, Northumbria. Right now, Egfrith's brother, Aldfrith, son of Oswiu, is ruling in the Northern Kingdom. And as you might remember from earlier episodes, Aldfrith, who is also known as Fland to the Irish, was never intended to be king. And the fact of the matter is that he wasn't exactly the clearest choice for the throne, he was an illegitimate son of Oswiu and an Irish princess. He was the fourth son of Oswiu. He was trained to enter a holy order rather than politics. And he had spent a lot of time in foreign lands, being trained in Wessex and even living in Ireland as recently as when Egfrith was killed in battle. This was not someone who was being groomed to rule in Northumbria. I mean, he definitely wasn't groomed the way Egfrith was. And when Egfrith took the throne... 
The transfer of power was peaceful and quick because everybody expected him to rule. But now that Egfrith had died without a son, things were a bit more complicated, and this must have been a time of anxiety in Northumbria. I mean, they were still reeling from losing one of the sons of Oswiu in battle against the Mercians at the Battle of the Trent. And now they had just lost another major battle against the Picts. And in that battle, they lost their king and a number of their nobles. And the king died childless. <laughs> this was a disaster. And while Aldfrith can claim descent from both the line of Ida as well as the line of Enail, he was illegitimate. And it's likely that there were other illegitimate Northumbrian nobles who could assert the same claim to the throne. And those nobles very well might have been in Northumbria at the time of Egfrith's death. And they probably spent more time in the kingdom than Aldfrith. And also, they very well could have been warriors as opposed to holy men. So how did Aldfrith pull this off? How did we have someone with this many barriers between him and the throne manage to successfully take Northumbria? Well, we aren't told how he claimed the throne, nor how long it took. Given the details were given of his life and his lifespan, it's possible, depending on the dating, that it could have taken Aldfrith as much as seven months to take the throne. And it's possible that there were some rival claimants that shook things up a bit. If that's the case, Aldfrith might have found support among the Scots of Dalriada and from Enail territory in Ireland. After all, he had royal blood ties to the area, and they certainly had motive, since they were eager to have a Northumbrian king who was friendly to Celtic nations. I mean, they definitely didn't want to have another belligerent king like Egfrith. But, regardless of what happened, what we can be sure of is that the prestige of the line of Oswiu, as well as the sheer intimidation factor that the name of that blood-drenched king undoubtedly carried with it, had to have been significant. Because despite all the issues that could have cast doubt upon his claim, Aldfrith appears to have ruled without any internal issues. And given the culture of the time and his situation, that's pretty astounding. Now, we aren't given a specific age for the new king, but Kirby suggests, based upon when Oswiu might have met up with the Irish princess Finn, that Aldfrith might have been in his 30s when he took the throne. And it seems like his education and maturity were a boon to him, because he hit the ground running and dramatically altered the course of one of the most powerful kingdoms in the Heptarchy. To start with, we have coins that were struck in his name. So we can be sure that there was enough stability and economic power to allow for their creation. Now, coins weren't unknown at this point in history, but in general, in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, they were foreign coins. And lately, the gold coins, which were the most common, had started to become heavily debased. Unscrupulous characters had realized that adding less valuable metals could allow them to stretch their currency, and therefore inflation was a serious problem. So it looks like King Aldfrith, or at least the advisors to King Aldfrith, had a solution to the issue. Stop using the gold coins, and use silver coins that were minted within Northumbria. And actually, the first silver Northumbrian coins we can find were struck in Aldfrith's name. Now naturally, the pure silver coins were valued less, despite being the same shape and size. I mean, they were silver, they weren't gold. But by doing this, King Aldfrith was able to halt, or at least slow down, the inflation that was running rampant. 
Further, the silver coins were much more useful. Gold coins were only useful for the wealthy, given the sheer value that they had, but silver coins could be used much more easily to obtain less valuable goods. For example, you're not going to use gold coins when you're buying grain at the market, but you might use silver coins. So, looking at what was going on with the economy, you can see why many scholars regard the reign of King Aldfrith as the beginning of the Golden Age for Northumbria, and it would last for about a hundred years. But it wasn't just money that Aldfrith was interested in developing. Probably due to his close ties with monasteries and men of the cloth, we're told by Bede that the king treated the monasteries with a light touch, exercising less control over them, and that paid off dividends. In this era, and extending throughout the Golden Age, we see an explosion of art, scholarly thought, and ecclesiastical matters taking place in Northumbria. This is the time of Bede, without whom we would know dramatically less about this fascinating period in history. And it's also the era where the Lindisfarne Gospels were produced, probably by Aedfrith of Lindisfarne. And of course, it was happening during the reign of Aldfrith. And the Lindisfarne Gospels were not the only illuminated manuscripts to be produced during this period. We also have the Durham Gospels and the Echternach Gospels. And notably, it's also the time when we start to see Eastern Britannia influencing the continent, with the beginning of missions across the Channel from the Anglo-Saxon Holy Orders. And much of this was coming out of Northumbria specifically. And as I said, this was just the spark that started a hundred-year golden age. For example, Monk Wearmouth and Jarrow produced a magnificent codex about a decade after Aldfrith's death. This shift in Northumbrian culture was dramatic and jaw-dropping, and in many ways, it was there to stay. At least, it was until the Norse got involved, but that's a story for another time. So, that's a rough sketch of the character of this new king, Aldfrith. And let's get back to the flow of the story. So, it's 686, which is the same year where Wilfred and his West Saxon friends probably gave the Archbishop of Canterbury an offer he couldn't refuse. And we're told that the Archbishop suddenly started urging King Aldfrith to set aside his family's conflict with Wilfred because Wilfred wanted to move back north, back to the kingdom where he once had an army that rivaled a king's. So Wilfred wanted to end his exile. And considering how he was imprisoned, how there were rumors that the previous king was discussing having him killed, and how intensely he was hated in the halls of power, at least up in Northumbria, that was a ballsy move. So why did he think he could pull it off? Well, with the recent death of Egfrith, it's possible that Wilfred was hoping that many of his enemies in Northumbria were either diminished or entirely out of power. But unfortunately for Wilfred, King Aldfrith had taken up the family business and hated Wilfred. So why would he accept the Archbishop's request? Sure, Wilfred does seem to have been a bit scary, and no one wants to end up sleeping with the fishes. But if fear of Wilfred was the real motivation here, keeping him the hell out of Northumbria would probably be the safest path. So why would Aldfrith consider letting him back in? Well, the thing is that Wilfred had been pretty busy, and he wasn't just making friends with the West Saxons. He was also getting friendly with King Aethelred of Mercia. And Mercia was becoming increasingly more powerful in the wake of the Battle of the Trent. 
Recently, they had absorbed the Hawissa, and while it is possible that they were dealing with some degree of conflict with the Welsh kingdoms, Mercia was probably taking advantage of the fact that Northumbria was no longer the threat it once was. They were still pretty badly bruised after Necton's Mera. And so Mercia was expanding its power base. And so now might not be the best time to antagonize them especially considering the fact that King Aldfrith of Northumbria was still a new king, and the Mercians had made a profession out of killing Northumbrian kings. So Aldfrith might have felt that his position was still a bit insecure, and he might have wanted to avoid any potential conflicts with their incredibly dangerous neighbor to the south. And frankly, Wilfred does strike me as someone who would turn the screws, so I find it quite likely that he might have been taking advantage of the fact that his West Saxon friends were dangerously close to the Archbishop, and that his Mercian friends were sharpening their swords. And he might have been using those facts in his effort to regain the Bishopric of York, or at the very least, some of his Northumbrian properties. You can almost imagine him saying something along the lines of, I know you used to be tough, but you just lost a major fight, and I'm friends with the guys who beat you up at the River Trent. And I'm also friends with the guys who just conquered Kent, Sussex, and exterminated everyone on the Isle of Wight. And the Archbishop, who my friends can visit whenever they want, says that we should talk about these properties of mine that you're holding. So, let's talk. And it seems like it worked because we're told that Wilfred was restored to at least a few of his territories in the north. And then, in the following year, 687, St. Cuthbert of Lindisfarne died, and Wilfred began administering the See of Lindisfarne in addition to his own properties. So, things were proceeding rather well for him. Meanwhile, King Aldfrith was still trying to secure his borders and soothe the wounds that had been created by his brother, his father, and even his grandfather's reigns. As you remember, Egfrith, Oswiu, and Aethelfrith had all managed to get into it with their neighbors. And towards the end of Egfrith's reign, shortly before the disastrous loss and his death at Necton's Mera, he sent a raiding party into Meath, which was led by a noble named Bert. And there, they captured a number of hostages and caused some degree of chaos. Well, that was not overly appreciated, and the hostages were never returned. But, as luck would have it, the new king Aldfrith was friends with Adomnan, the abbot of Iona. And given Aldfrith's liturgical background, as well as his connection with Irish monasticism, it isn't too surprising that they were friends. They might have even studied together. Anyway, probably secure that he would be welcomed safely by his friend, Abbot Adomnan traveled to Northumbria to speak with Aldfrith in 687 and 688. And there, he secured the release of some of the prisoners. And thus, Aldfrith probably avoided a potential fight. So, do you see what I mean about this change in culture? Could you imagine Egfrith or Oswiu ever releasing any prisoners? Or even welcoming anybody? But things were different under Aldfrith. So that's what's going on in the north. But so we don't lose track of what was going on with the rest of the Heptarchy, in 689 we're told that Oswina emerged as the king of eastern Kent, with western Kent being ruled by Swaifherd, son of King Sabi of Essex. Swaifherd, by the way, is an amazing name. But something interesting to note here is that there are indications in the charters that King Aethelred of Mercia might have been supporting the new kings of Kent, 
Now that's significant because Mercia and Wessex weren't exactly on speaking terms at this point. And when we last heard of Kent, it was being directly ruled by Wessex. Yet here we see Eastern Kent having its own king and Western Kent being ruled over by the dynasty of Essex and Mercia, not Wessex, supporting them both. So it seems that with the death of King Caedwalla of Wessex, not only had the direct rule of Kent come to an end, but now Mercia was once again gaining in power and prestige to the detriment of the West Saxons. And speaking of Kent, on September 19th, 690, Theodore of Tarsus, the Archbishop of Canterbury, died. And many of the Christians in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were saddened by this loss. But not all of them. Wilfred was probably quite pleased, though he likely kept that to himself. And this wasn't just because he and the Archbishop had famously gotten into quite a few conflicts. There was something else at play here. With the death of the Archbishop, Wilfred at last had his chance to take real power on the island. And everything was lined up for him. He was heading up Lindisfarne, he had several of his Northumbrian territories back, and he had a promise from the Archbishop that he would be the next to take Canterbury. But when we look at the records, he was not immediately consecrated as Archbishop. In fact, there wasn't any Archbishop of Canterbury that year. Surely he would have pressed his claim. It would be strange otherwise. But oddly, the record is silent on this matter. For example, we don't even have any indication that there was a synod to discuss this matter. Well, it is possible that he made a move, but it didn't work out. And the situation was so profoundly irreligious and embarrassing that it wasn't commented on in the records. Now, the reason I say that is because we have a charter from 691 that seems to indicate that King Aethelred of Mercia invaded Kent. And some scholars have suggested that if this record is accurate, he might have invaded in order to place Wilfred on the archbishopric. But he failed. And the idea of a violent invasion to install an archbishop would be exactly the sort of thing that the highly religious scribes might have wanted to whitewash. So the theory is not without merit. But whatever the case, in 692, nearly two years after Archbishop Theodore died, it became clear that Wilfred was never going to hold the archbishopric. And Beertwald, the abbot of Reculver, was selected as the new Archbishop of Canterbury. And again, we don't see any indication that there was a synod to discuss Wilfred disputing the selection. But it seems like the selection can't have been without controversy because it took a full year after his appointment for Beertwald to be consecrated. And he did so in Gaul with the Archbishop of Lyon. So what exactly was going on there? Unfortunately, we don't have detailed records of this event, but there must have been some pretty heavy political wrangling that was going on behind the scenes. Meanwhile, right at about this same time, so at about 692, we read that Wilfred was once again pushing to reclaim the Northumbrian bishopric of York, the same one that was split up by the last archbishop because it was too big. Yeah, well, Wilfred wanted it put back together, and he wanted to be the head of it. And he told King Aldfrith as much. But King Aldfrith wasn't impressed and stated that he should accept the former archbishop's decision on the matter. Now this caused quite a bit of conflict between the two men, and Wilfred's hagiographer explains it well. 
Quote, For a while, all would be peace between the wise King Aldfrith and our holy bishop, and a happier state of affairs could hardly be imagined. Then spite would boil up again, and the situation would be reversed. And so they continued for years, in and out of friendship with each other, till finally their quarrels came to a head and the king banished Wilfred from Northumbria. Yeah, Aldfrith, like his brother before him, tossed Wilfred out of Northumbria, and Wilfred fled to Northumbria's mortal enemies, Mercia. And then King Aethelred of Mercia appointed Wilfred as the Bishop of the Middle Angles, which was an excellent way to flip the bird to their long-standing enemies to the north. The battle lines were being drawn. But 692 wasn't the same as 689, and it seems that King Aldfrith was feeling a bit more secure. Maybe his diplomacy had shored up his northern border, so he didn't mind potentially angering Mercia. Or maybe he was taking advantage of the fact that Wilfred, now Bishop Wilfred of the Middle Angles, was finally out of his kingdom. Or maybe he felt safer because the archbishopric was now out of Bishop Wilfred's hands, and it was in Beertwald's. Or maybe it was more personal, and Bishop Wilfred had done what he was best at, causing serious irritations for the kings of Northumbria. Whatever the case, Aldfrith exercised his royal authority and took back some of the lands at Ripon, the lands that were once Wilfred's. And that did not sit well with Wilfred. We'll have to wait until the next episode to see how it all plays out. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British history podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest. Tumblr is kind of exploding right now. You should check it out. There's different stuff on all the different sites and you can find links to all of them at the British history podcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>